the greatest revival perhaps of all time, when an entire nation knows the Lord. Isaiah said that it would be in one day that Israel will be revived and come to know the Lord in extraordinary ways and during extraordinary circumstances. But it's not just then that we read about it, but in the book of Acts in chapter 2, we find Peter stands up, the lead follower of Messiah. He begins to present a message and 3,000 people respond and come to know Messiah as Savior. That continues to spread, and we read in chapter 6 or so that a host of the Levites came to know Messiah as well. But it's not just there. Perhaps the earliest record of a revival we read about happens in the city of Nineveh in Assyria when God sends the prophet Jonah to that city. And as a consequence, the king of Nineveh, the king of Assyria, of that empire, commands all of his subjects to put on sackcloth and ashes to begin to repent and to confess their sin. And as a consequence, salvation is extended to the people. Repentance is offered and the forgiveness of God is provided. And the city is spared, all because of a revival that breaks out. The question is, what is or are the catalysts for such things to take place? There are three things that are consistent with all of these events that I have spoken about. And it finds itself manifest in Nehemiah as well, in chapters 8, 9, and 10. In chapter 9, we see the second element that is critical to any revival. The first element we saw in chapter 8, and that is the teaching of the Word of God. The, pre the presenting of the truths of God's Word. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra is put up on a platform, the Levite, the priest, and he reads God's Word. And as he's reading God's word and some of his fellow priests fan out among the Jewish people, they begin to translate God's word. Perhaps they explained some of it, although the text doesn't tell us precisely. But in the context of the presenting of God's word, something begins to happen with the people. They begin to mourn over their sin. They experience sorrow for their sin. And that's what is enlarged in chapter 9. But their grief becomes so intense as they become more and more aware of how alienated they are from God, how disappointing their lives must have been toward God and has been, that their mourning becomes so intense that Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel stand up and they tell the people to stop mourning. I think that's rather instructive. And it is reflective of some wonderful characteristics of Nehemiah and these leaders. They didn't use this moment manipulatively, but rather they focused on the people's relationship to God. And they said, this is meant to be a time of celebration. The word of God is being presented. And we want you to stop mourning. And so they do. They go home and they celebrate and they eat with their families 
and they rejoice in God's blessings. They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And now, after the Feast of Tabernacles, about three weeks after the reading of Scripture, two days after the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles in Nehemiah chapter 9, the people gather once more together. And they gather under the Levites, who again are going to bring the Scripture to their minds. Look at chapter 9. It says, on the 24th day of the same month, the month of Tishrei, So the Feast of Tabernacles has been concluded. They're now gathered together. It says the Israelites gathered together. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, having dust on their heads. This reads very much like what transpired in Nineveh during the time of Jonah's ministry. And in verse 2, those of the Israelites' descent had separated themselves from the foreigners. They stood in their places and they confessed their sin. And the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. Spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord, their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, and they are named. And then when you come to the end of verse 5, the Levites say, stand up. And praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. What a powerful image. What a powerful moment is happening in Israel's history under Nehemiah's leadership. The people gather together. And notice again, they're reading the law of the Lord. The book of the law of the Lord. And they read it for three hours. A quarter of the day. So for three hours, the scriptures are being read. For three hours, the people are standing with sackcloth and ashes. They're reflecting on their own sin, but not only their own sin. Look what he says. The text says, and the wickedness of their fathers. These are pow- this is a powerful moment in Israel's history. And when they think of the wickedness of their fathers... These Jewish people are gathered and they're thinking of the collective responsibility they have of as a community. In our day and age, when we think of the wickedness of our fathers, we see it as an excuse for why we happen to live our lives the way it is. It's because of them and what they have done. And look what we've inherited from them. But not so these Israelites. They were saying, we are like them. We are as culpable as they. And we only stand to blame ourselves for whatever our circumstances are. For we too have sinned against the Lord. And so they confess their sin. For three hours they hear the law of the Lord read. It's important for us to reflect on this for a moment because the question is, what is sin? And we think of sin as alienation from God, to be sure, or the results of it. But sin is something more than that. Sin is not merely doing wrong things. Sin is not merely being mean. Sin is not merely being unkind. Ultimately, sin is a violation of God's law. And so as the law is being read, They're sitting in judgment of God's word. That's why in the synagogue, what we have in terms of the furniture in the synagogue is what's called the bima. 
And the bima is like the enlarged pulpit upon which the Torah scroll, scroll is unrolled. The bima is the place of judgment. It's the place of judgment because as the law of God is read, we as hearers of that law are responsible now to ask us some very serious questions. The first of which is, do we understand what the law is expecting and requiring? The second is, have we lived our lives in accordance with its truths? In other words, the law stands in judgment over us, and it becomes the mechanism by which we understand what God's expectations are for our lives. And thus, it's placed not merely on a podium, but it's on the bema, the place of judgment. That's why Paul later tells us in the book of Corinthians that we all shall sit or stand before the bema seat of Messiah. It's the same imagery that we will stand before him and give an accounting of our lives. And as a result, some will receive gold, silver, precious stones, and some will receive wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, some will be acknowledged for what, how their life was lived as unto the Lord. Others will lose out on those rewards because of the lack of allowing the transformative work of the Spirit of God to take up residence in our hearts. So as the Israelites are before, or I should say as Ezra and the Levites are before the people, he's presenting to them God's law, God's word. That's the first criteria for any revival to take place. It is God's word that must be front and center. It's truths clearly presented and the challenge to live in light of them. It's the word of God that takes center stage. And in all of these revivals throughout history, it is always God's word that comes to bear on either an individual, a congregation, or a nation's life. As I reflect back on my own life and how it was that God some, oh my, 1971, when I gave my life to the Lord, what was the mechanism that was at work? And it was a friend of mine who said, have you ever read about Yeshua for, well, he didn't say Yeshua, he said Jesus, for yourself? And I hadn't. It was the word of God that he gave to me. And challenged me to read as well as to pray. And to ask God to open up its truths to my heart. Over time, as I came to read those words, as they began to settle in in my heart as well as in my mind. As they began to become a basis upon which I evaluated what my life was truly about, even though I was only 17 and couldn't think too deeply about such things, but deeply enough to know that I was in bad shape before God, that it led to my mourning over my sin. That's what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 9, and that's the second element that's true of all revivals that take place. It's the word of God that is presented. Its truths are clarified and understood and embraced. 
And when those truths are acknowledged, embraced, and understood, there's sorrow for how our lives truly are. There's a need to do something about the failings that we now become cognizant of in our lives. Now take a look at Nehemiah chapter 9. This is the prayer, the longest prayer in all of Scripture, that the Levites lead the people in praying. It's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of acknowledgement. It's a prayer that expresses sorrow for their sin. And look how it begins. He says, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. The first aspect of the prayer is praying to God as creator. He's the one who has made everything, and thus he is lauded as the king of all kings the creator of the universe, the one whose name, his character is glorious, the one who alone is to be blessed, the one who alone should be exalted above all blessing and praise. In other words, there's not enough words. There isn't enough verbiage we can confer upon God to acknowledge how great and wonderful and marvelous he is. He's the God of creation. And while in many circles... The focus on thinking about God as creator and looking at the words in the book of Genesis that speak of God as creator, while the focus in our day and age has been on how God has created the universe and thus the debates over evolution and creationism, whether the creation account is one of six 24 literal days or whether there are six eras of time, whether God uses the mechanism as many reflect on or consider as theistic evolution or some progressive manner or simply an immediate creation that takes place, while that seems to dominate our landscape, that is not what dominates the words of Moses. Moses does not focus so much or at all on those issues. He focuses on the goodness of God in creating. His whole point is to reveal that our God is a good God. How do we know that he's a good God? Because everything he has made has been good. Everything he does is always good. And thus on the first day after the light or whatever was created, the scripture says, and it was good. And then the second day, and it was good. And the third day, and it was good. Finally, on the last day, and it was very good. What Moses wants to convey is that our God is a good God. And whatever he does, he does for our benefit. That's why when the rabbis raise the question, and they say, why doesn't the scriptures begin with Exodus chapter 20? I am the Lord your God who called you out of the land of bondage. You are to have no other gods before me. Why doesn't the Bible begin with the Ten Commandments? Remember, it's Moses who writes Genesis chapter 1. 
And he's writing it sometime after the Exodus. Sometime after ascending up Mount Sinai, where he spent 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord. Sometime when God had given him the Ten Commandments. Why doesn't he start the Bible there? That's the question the rabbis ask. And the answer is not, at least from the rabbinic point of view, because that is how history begins. That is chronologically how things occur, occurred. But rather, they say, it is to demonstrate the goodness of God. Why ought the goodness of God to take center stage and be the first thing we're introduced to? The rabbis say, because when God gives commands, he gives those commands from the posture of his goodness. And he doesn't simply desire that we obey him out of simple obedience, but rather we would obey him because we know that he is good and whatever he would command us, we would find delight in obeying. They liken it to when a king takes up residence on his throne and issues commands. If he simply issues commands, people are prone to rebel against authority. But if the king provides for his people, if the king does good things, and the people recognize what a good king we have sitting on our throne, when he issues commands, we will desire to obey him because we know just how good he is. So the creation account begins with an acknowledgement of the goodness of God so that when he issues his laws, we would say, of course, we want to obey you because what a wonderful God you are. In this prayer, the same thing is happening. We might think that we have to become somewhat self-loathing or somewhat uh, uh, just self-deprecating when we speak about confessing of sin or repenting. But when we remember that our God is a good God, then to be moved to such things will only result in great things yet to be received from his hand. So in verse uh, 6 or so, the prayer begins, Blessed be your glorious name. You alone are the Lord. And then in chapter 7, or excuse me, in verse 7, as the prayer continues, we get into the history of the Jewish people. And he begins to reflect in his prayer on what God has done for Israel. Look at verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. It's interesting that the prayer focuses on the changed name of Avram. His name meant father of nations, Avram. But Avraham meant father of many nations. Because God had made a promise to Abraham that if you can count the stars in heaven, so shall your descendants be multiplied. If you can count the sand on the seashore, so shall your descendants be multiplied. And so as this prayer begins, it reflects on the goodness of God in choosing Abraham. But that when God chose Abraham, he wasn't going to leave Abraham like he was. He was going to transform him and use him in a miraculous way so as to multiply his descendants. So there would be a nation who would know God in the very depths of their being. And so he mentions Abraham. 
And notice the focus on God through all of this prayer. Even though there's going to be confession, look what he says. You're the Lord. You're the one who chose Abraham. Look at verse 8. Notice the phrase does not say, and Abraham was found faithful. Rather, it says, you found his heart faithful. You made a covenant with him. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. And so this calling out of Abraham was meant to demonstrate the righteousness and the goodness of God. God has always been faithful to us. And our faithful response is a result of his faithfulness to us. So that when you look at verse 9, he tells us about the exodus now in the history of Israel. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You sent miraculous signs. Verse 11, you divided the sea before them. Verse 12, by day you led them with a pillar of cloud by night and with a pillar of fire by, uh, by day. Notice also what's neat about this prayer. It's a very theological prayer, we would say today. It reflects on the character of God. Look at verse 8. He's one who is all-knowing. You saw the suffering of our forefathers. You were aware of all that was said. Later, he will say, you heard our prayer. In verse 10, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. You sent miraculous signs. Not just signs and wonders, but miraculous ones. You are our defense. You sent them against our enemies, against Pharaoh, against all of those that harmed us. You demonstrated your glory. He says you made a name for yourself. You are the one that rescued us. You redeemed us. You're the God of redemption. Verse 11, you divided the sea so that we could pass through. You are our guide. Verse 12, by your Shekinah glory, you led us moment by moment. Verse 13, he's one who condescends to meet us where we are at. In verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai. What an interesting expression. The Lord fills the universe. There isn't a throne upon which he can sit. There isn't a temple that can contain him in all of his glory. And yet the scripture says he came down. He somehow made himself temporal. He somehow restrained himself. I don't know what word to use, but he came down to Moses. I said at Shalom Fellowship, our Friday evening home group, where the rabbis talk much in terms of messianic prophecy of how God would somehow limit himself in order to relate to God's people. And it dawned on me while we were reflecting on this that the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, reveal to us to what degrees God is willing to go in order to identify with us, communicate with us, and to make himself most known to us, where he would take on human form and be born as, a, as an infant and grow up among us and live among us. I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling to think that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And here, Nehemiah the Levites pray similarly. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. 
You're the one that gave the laws and decrees. You made known your holy Shabbat. You gave commands. You gave decrees through your servant Moses. When we were hungry, you provided us with manna. You provided us with water. And then verse 16 shows how the people reacted. Verse 16, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant, stiff-necked, and did not obey. We refused to obey your commands, to listen. We failed to remember the miracles. We became stiff-necked. But you are a forgiving God. I love how this is intermingled with this confession. But you are a forgiving God. You are a gracious God. You are a compassionate God. You are a God that's slow to anger. You're abounding in love. You're overflowing with love. And therefore, you didn't desert your people, even though, look at this comparison, even though they set up an image of a calf and worshipped it, you still did not abandon your people. Why? Verse 19, because of your great compassion. Again, you guided them for 40 years in their state of rebelliousness. You dwelt with your people. You tabernacled among them. Though they lacked faith, When the spies went into the promised land and came back with a positive report, nevertheless, for 40 years, you sustained them. In verse 22, as the Israelites come into the land, he promised them, you gave them kingdoms. You helped us overcome our enemies. He tells us in verse 25, they captured cities. But in verse 26, they were disobedient. They killed the prophets who had admonished them. And so we experienced great judgment. Go back to chapter, in chapter 9 and look again at verse, at verse 2. Those of the Israelite descent had separate, and then he says, they stood in their places, they confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. It is true that when revivals break out, it's the word of God the work of God that is reflected on and how it has manifested the goodness of God. It grips our hearts in such a way that we begin to look at our own lives and we realize how we have alienated ourselves from God, how we've separated ourselves from him. We reflect on our strong word, our wickedness. Is it really true that we are that way? To each other, we seem fairly reasonable individuals. We seem fairly good to one another. Even Yeshua says, you who are evil, how is it that, and you know how to give good things to your children. And yet there is that need for us, like the Israelites during the time of Nehemiah, to remember that we have a great need. And if we desire revival to break out, it will necessitate that God's word is heard, that inventory is taken of one's life, whether it's individually or corporately or nationally, there must become an awakening of the great need. And this is not an easy thing to do. If we look at verse 6, there is, uh, verse 36, the Levites then offer a prayer for God's mercy. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit 
and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Now, last week, Jerry had drawn our attention to Second Chronicles. I was rereading that passage because often when we look at these familiar passages and we know them so well, they sort of get lost. So I reread this and I thought it was appropriate in light of this section of Nehemiah. The people concluded we are in great distress. Sin has been the culprit in our lives and we are slaves in our own land. I had shared with you that these two individuals had come into my office to ask me about slavery in the Civil War and what the, how the Bible was used to justify it or to condemn it. And we talked about those things. But in the course of that conversation, as we were speaking, and it wasn't something that was just planned, but it dawned on me that while we may speak of the enslavement of individuals physically, there's an enslavement that we all experience spiritually in which we are shackled by our sin. And even when we are freed, sin has a way of manifesting itself and enslaving us once again. And it is true, though there are many moments when we do not feel this way, overall there is that sense that we are in distress and we need God's redemptive work and we need his healing hand. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, in verse 14, which Jerry had read, we read, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. Now, just come back to the beginning of this passage. Number one, notice the progression. First of all, it is God who is at work. If my people who are called by my name. And notice who God, what God's people are called to do. We oftentimes think that because we've invited the Lord into our lives, that there's not a need to revisit who we are and to revisit our need. Notice what he tells us to do. First of all, to humble ourselves. This is not something that is easy to do. It is to be honest and forthright with who we truly are. When I think of this passage, I can't help but think of the opposite of this. A man like Nebuchadnezzar, about whom we read when we were looking, reading through and studying and uh, learning from the book of Daniel, who when he looked upon the empire of Babylon, he said, look what my hands have created. Great pride rather than humility. When we look at the evil one and we read in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, the two central passages on the evil one's rebelliousness against the living God, we find five times he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The expression of his pride. But what God calls each and every one of us to do Whether as unbelievers we needed to do this in order to experience salvation, 
or as believers in order to experience the fullness of his working in our lives, there is a need to humble ourselves, bow before the living God, reminding ourselves that who we are and what we are and what we do is purely by his grace. And without it, we are in great distress. And the great blessings that God gives us can, in effect, become that which burdens us, like the land Israel was given, but it was overrun by foreigners, like all of the produce of the land that God provided for Israel, but they had to give it away to all foreign kings. If Israel was to go forward after the rebuilding of the walls, their hearts had to be changed. And it necessitated a humbling of themselves before God. The second thing that was required was not the state of humility, but secondly, the preeminence of prayer. He says, my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Pray, praying is not natural to us. And the reason why prayer is not natural to us is because by nature, because of our fallenness, it always comes back to that, we feel we are self-sufficient. And we really can manage on our own. And that given enough fortitude and stick to we can make it happen, we can get through, and we can endure any trial. Prayer is the result of a humble heart because it's the expression of great need and that without God, we cannot go forward in our lives. And so we need a state of humility. We need God to do a work where he breaks through our natural resistance to depending upon another And in this case, depending upon him. And thus he tells us not only to humble ourselves, but also to pray. The third thing he tells us is that we are to seek God's face. More often than not, we seek the acceptance. We we desire to seek the acknowledgement of others rather than the acknowledgement of God and his acceptance. We would prefer that others see us in a particular light than that God sees us the way he would want us to be seen by him. In other words, the prayer is that God is the reason why we do what we do and believe what we believe and no one else necessarily. It is for him that we do what we do. When we come to worship, we are in ultimately, and Edward and I were talking about this, when we lead in worship, ultimately we are doing this for an audience of one. It is God who is the object of our worship. To be sure, we want to sing on the right notes and play the right chords so that we don't irritate you. But more importantly, we don't want to irritate God with a heart that is not desirous of seeking him. So when we come to worship him, when we come to light the candles, 
We're doing this as an, for an audience of one. Others are observing, but when we observe, we should be observing as for an audience of one. When the word of God is presented, we should be listening attentively and presenting it ultimately for an audience of one. It is his face that we seek, and it is his will we desire to accomplish. He not only tells us that we must humble ourselves, not only tells us we must pray, expressing our dependency upon him, not only seeking to please him above all others, and here is the final step, we must turn from our wicked ways. And so we ask, do we really have wicked ways to turn from? Most of us would say, well, I know I have some bad things I need to turn from. I don't know if I'd call them wicked things, but maybe we should. Maybe we're not really turning because we don't really know the depth of the wickedness we oftentimes are exhibiting in our lives. We use words, and I oftentimes do in my own messages, not to offend, that these are failings. These are shortcomings in our lives. These are weaknesses that we have. But if we want revival to break out, we must be honest about what those weaknesses, those failings, those kinds of things are. In the eyes of God, it appears that they are wicked ways and not just merely the limitations of our humanity, but something that blocks the very work of God in the way that God would desire to work. And so the writer tells us, or as God is speaking, if my people, there's the key word, right? If my people, who God has called out to be his own, will first of all humble themselves before him, will pray in dependency upon him, will seek to please him above all others and will turn from those ways that are abhorrent in his eyes. God then makes promises to us. The first thing he says is, I will hear from heaven. That is just, I mean, we could stop right there. God will listen to us. How often have you called someone, called someone, called someone, they don't return the call. I've been very guilty of this. And you're crying out, I just want you to listen to me. I just want you to hear what I have to say. And God says, I'm here to listen. I'm here to hear you. I'm all ears to a prayer like this. If we so do, as we have reflected, God says, not I might hear, but I will hear you. But that's not all God would do. For some, we might say, it's just enough. I just need to vent. I just need to be heard. But God says he'll do something else. He will forgive us of our sin, that he will cancel the debt, 
that he'll no longer hold us accountable for it. That he will wipe the slate clean. That he will cast our sin into the depths of the sea. That he will separate those sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He will utterly forgive and not have an accounting somewhere in the back of his mind to bring up at an opportune time when he might want to take advantage. He will forgive, and it will be resolved and done. But that's not all he would do. It tells us not only will he hear, will he listen, will he be responsive, I can't help but think of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. God will hear us. But not only will he hear us, he'll forgive us. But then he'll go one further step. He will heal us. He will bind our wounds. He will remove the guilt. He will take away the blemish. He will empower us to live differently in a way that is transformative, in a way that reflects the very presence of God's Spirit in our lives. That is what revival is about, isn't it? It ultimately is the Word of God taking hold of our lives in such a way that we become cognizant of, in a way we haven't before, of just who we really are alienated from God because of our sin. And yet not left there, but then to be encouraged to turn to Him, to experience the forgiveness and the transformation that can take place. And thus in the case of Nineveh, It turned a city around. In the case of armies of the Potomac as well as of Virginia, it led to life eternal. In the case of individuals along the North American continent, it changed American life in those eras. In the case of what's happening in our own day along that equatorial area of our planet, there is a transformation of spiritual life that finds its way manifesting itself in meeting the needs of the people around them as well. These are the first two components of revival, the Word of God and sorrow for sin that is genuine, that leads to an acknowledgement of it and a turning from it. Next week in chapter 10, Israel then signs a covenant before God, determining to allow God's spirit to lead them to live a new and different life. We need to pray that this might happen in our own city, in our own lives, in the lives of countless people around us, and in our congregations and churches throughout this area that revival would break out. Our prayer should be that God's word is forthrightly taught and that people are moved to repentance and then are determined to live for him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful for your word, for it is life everlasting. 
Our desire, Father, is to see your hand manifested in our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. Help us to be devoted to your word, for it will make known to us our need as well as your provision. Help us, Father, to be mindful of our own personal need, but we pray that our nation might wake up to her need. We pray our community might wake up to its need. We pray for the lost sheep of the house of Israel that they might realize their state of affairs as lost, but nevertheless the beloved sheep of God's fold. And so we pray that you might utilize us to proclaim your truth. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would move in our hearts to do like the people in Nehemiah's day had done. And then, Father, might you use us to bring glory, honor, and praise to you day by day, moment by moment. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.